You're listening to Love Stories with me, Dolly Alderton, a series in which I talk to guests about their most defining relationships, the passion, heartbreak, longing, familiarity and fondness that has formed who they are. My guest this week is the writer, actor and director Sharon Hawken. Like many people, I first fell in love with Sharon's ruthlessly honest, occasionally caustic comic voice in her 2006 TV series, Pulling, which she co-wrote and starred in as Donna, a directionless but lovable woman who finds herself at the beginning of her 30s wanting to start anew. Sharon has written prolifically, widely, and to great critical acclaim about all different stories, from prison in Dead Boss, to divorce in HBO's Divorce, to Catastrophe, a phenomenally funny, at times heartbreaking, and characteristically truthful comedy drama about marriage. Sharon co-wrote and co-starred in the series with comedian Rob Delaney, and their on-screen relationship and all its complications, contradictions, cruelty, and unique connection have left audiences both here and in America utterly hooked. I guess, I don't know, it's a bit of a tricky one because really it wasn't the sort of idea that came about. It was just, it was me and him mm. that came about. Like, mm. that's all it was really because um, because it is about, you know, an Irish woman meeting an American man and, you know, all of that. We knew that we both uh, wanted to write about um, like a real version of a, a real marriage and then there was kind of, I guess, little obstacles that become creative, positive things, which is he's American, I'm Irish, why are we together? Um, we initially thought we were going to throw ourselves right in the middle of it all. But then we thought, no, maybe it'd be nice to show how they met. And, um, and then sort of, I guess, using my own sort of situation a bit that... It was a relationship that sort of happened in a hurry and there's sort of like element of them speed lifing, you know, and that that might be something fun to write about and also like give us a kind of premise, I suppose, mm. um, that we could also just forget about after a Why while. Why can't you yeah. say that when you're pitching to people? I love that you said that, that you have to like have this like structured premise yeah, and then you're allowed to like just forget about it, but you have I to know. pitch it so hard yeah. initially. And in fact, like when people bring ideas to me now I kind of it's like the thing I think about like would those characters like if you lifted those characters out of the premise where would they be people you'd want to hang around with uh, you know do the jokes work outside of the premise and are they like strong characters in their own right you know mm. um but yeah it's it's tricky isn't it it's just it's it's I guess it's just that you gotta really like kill it in the room like when you are like going in with an idea like the sort of ta-da thing whereas if you went in and it was just me and Rob going we're just gonna write about each other <laughs> I don't know where you get like short shrift you know so so yeah I suppose it, it was like it was premacy to begin with and then that just sort of fell to the side I guess. And had you created and, and written with Rob before or was this the first go? Oh no it was completely the first go. We had met like a good few years previously and you know liked each other's work and you know got on and sort of were supportive of, of each other and each other's work and uh, and then I, you know I'd, I'd sort of 
go over there and make a pilot and he would come in and, you know, when we do a read through and pitch ideas and, you know, I'd go and sort of watch his stand up and, but we hadn't, hadn't sort of gone beyond that. You know, it's kind of like vague, sort of we should do something at some point. And then he just got the opportunity to write something for the BBC at that point. It was at the BBC and, and then just hadn't written a sitcom before. So came to me and said, do you want to do it? And I was in the middle of writing, um, making a pilot for ABC, you know, for the network ABC. So <laughs> we would go to my office on the ABC <laughs> lot <laughs> and, uh, you know, write, write, write this thing, this like contraband sort of thing. And um, while I was supposed to be doing that, I probably shouldn't say that, but... <laughs> Um, but I still did the other thing. Yeah. Um, the other thing didn't get picked up. But um, but yeah, it was weird because I just, uh, I got offered, um, uh, am I talking too much? No, you're too I, I, I got offered this. Can I just um, say something? This is something that Irish women do every time I interview them. What, talk? There's No, lot. there's this real sense of like, oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't be talking too much. And it's like, I've literally <laughs> asked you here to talk. Well, um, it's so funny that all Irish women do that do when they? I interview them. Yeah, there's this real sense of not wanting to take too much space or really? something. Yeah. Not me and my sisters when we're drunk. There's definitely like that. Just it's like a wall of sound. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I got, I got uh, like after that ABC pilot didn't go, I got offered this other um, network deal and. You know, for a couple of scripts, and I guess at the time it's the kind of thing that you're like, oh, well, that was sort of sort my family for mm. a few years or whatever, and just just like having this feeling like don't do it, like had this because at that stage it's just a script. I mean, Rob and like who, you know yourself, like most of the time you don't know whether anything's going to turn into anything at all, and yeah. I just had this feeling that kind of that's what I want to do, and because I think it had been a while since. I'd really found like something I kind of love, like I did with pulling, you know, and writing with Dennis and, and I sort of had felt like, you know, there's been a few years where I was kind of making stuff, but never really feeling that kind of love connection with it, you know, and sort of thought, oh, well, that won't happen again. But, you know, it was great while it lasted. And then, so yeah, just sort of not really having any, you know, any sort of, um, anything on the table at all and still not taking this big old offer because I was like, no, I think like I have a feeling that it'll be okay. Like mm. I'm feeling like it'll be all right and I need to sort of just take a chance. I'm so fascinated by people who write together because I think writing in a two, it, it can be challenging. How was that initially writing with him? Did you find um, a process? Did you work out this, you know, what his strengths and your weaknesses were and what your strengths and his weaknesses were? Did you like quickly find a kind of stride together? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, yeah, it was pretty quickly actually, but it, it's never quick enough mm. um, in, a, in a writing kind of partnership because it's so embarrassing. I mean, it is like sleeping with someone for the first time, like yeah. you're so exposed and there's nowhere to hide. There's just like this blank page and you know, everything you're just going to vomit out onto it. And um, we were, you know, it was like plinky, plonky, tippy typey for a while. And then, you know, then I guess you loosen up a bit and there's a lot of talking and talking's fine because it doesn't become real until it kind of goes on the page. So that, that sort of loosens you up as well. 
I guess the process was just trying to lose that self-consciousness because mm. that was never going to work for a show like Chastity. Totally. And I just had to really just try and find a way to park that. And um, and did you find yourself initially being sort of needlessly polite with each other? Yeah, I mean, initially, yeah. And then we sort of, I mean, the thing was, we realised that we just had to throw everything at it, you know. And the only time we ever really got, <laughs> the only time we ever really got self-conscious is when we, because uh, once we got on a stride, we didn't really think about it. And then we found that we were writing this sort of sex scene. Mm. And I can't remember who, what one of us commented that isn't this weird, you know, that we're writing this thing that we're going to eventually have to go and do. Mm. And then we just kind of froze, like we were both... <laughs> It was just really awkward because, you know, it, it suddenly all had all this sort of, you know, meaning when it didn't at all. Yeah. And then we start thinking about maybe I shouldn't write that because what does that mean if I put down that I, <laughs> you know, um, whatever. In those initial conversations when you were talking about who these people are and what yeah. their relationship would be, when you were like sketching them out, what were the what were the defining big things that you wanted to see in both of them? I think um, I think we really like the idea of Rob's character, like the main male character in the thing, being you know sort of gentle, I suppose, and not and and a really good person, mm. and you know, I mean, obviously fucks up and um, gets things wrong, and is you know plenty of moments where he's an asshole, but we we like the idea of him you know, not being this sort of man child, like being a, a grown up, you know, grown up man who who realizes that that actions have consequences and wants to learn and that's making him sound like a really boring character, but it was mm. wasn't something that we necessarily saw a lot in yeah. male characters on screen. Certainly male characters within a marriage on screen are often like um like babies, you know, yeah. that, that kind yeah. of um sort of screwing up and being excused for it and like, you know, making good in the end and um or or just sort of being alpha males and uh not that he's like a uh a beta male or anything, you know, he's just not he he his you know, he's not ruled by his sort of um masculine traits, I suppose. Well he's thoughtful, isn't he? There's that wonderful quote yeah. when when you're talking about how you'll remember each other. Oh yes. And yeah. it's one of my favourite lines and you say to him that he's a, a sturdy lovemaker yeah. with a beautiful chin or something and that he is you'll always remember him as a man who was kind to waiters. Yeah, to waiters and taxi drivers yeah. su might suggest he's a good person. Yeah. Um, yeah, he is. He's kind and he's sort of, and he's kind of like Rob. I mean, Rob sort of is that person, polite and kind and thoughtful. And so I guess we, we just sort of wanted to pull that out a bit. And I think with my character, um, I, I think we, we just wanted to allow her to um, not have everything figured out. I mean, she's definitely one step beyond Donna in pulling kind of character. She kind of, she she wasn't sort of kidding herself anymore that there was something kind of better out there for her, you know, career-wise. And she's kind of, you know, settled and made some choices and and, you know, maybe sort of messed up and made bad ones along the way. But had kind of gotten to a place where she was quite solid in her 
sense of self and confidence mm. and stuff, but also was we liked that she was an angry person. Yeah. <laughs> that uh, um, <laughs> um, I met. He's that amazing Irish singer, um, Imelda May. Imelda May. Uh, um, an Irish um, do and she was like she said she came up to me at it she's going you know my my, I have an English boyfriend and he didn't understand me he didn't understand why I could be so angry and, and then happy and um, and then I showed him your show and he was like oh okay <laughs> so yeah we just wanted her to be um, you know a bit of a contradiction someone who kind of needed him to rub, rub her corners off a bit you mm. know um, but that's those corners as well are the things that that certainly for me as someone who's like such a spineless people pleaser, I find <laughs> so like inspiring yeah. in her. And I think I remember DMing yeah. you because I quoted her in a piece about oh, about making yeah, everyone like me. Yeah. And there's this amazing quote where your character of Sharon says to Rob, who is more keen on, on yeah. you know, having the approval of yeah. strangers, yeah. where your character says, I don't need everyone to love me. I'm not a puppy. Yeah. I'm a grown up and I've earned the fucking right to make sure that people Yeah, hate I've earned me. the right to have people not yeah. like me. And yeah. he's like, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> but I do remember... That's quite radical for a female yeah. character, I think, on screen. Yeah, well, I mean, you sort of, yeah, on screen, but in life, right? Totally. Yeah. You kind of, um, I mean, I kind of, something I kind of get pulled up on a bit, you know, like I definitely find I'm told that I should make more <laughs> more of an effort or, you know, um, or, or, or have that leveled at me as a sort of... Um, complaint you know that I should care more about whether people like me or not and it's it's weird because I, I definitely do care I guess just maybe I don't instantly go into like me mode yeah like maybe I would have used to have you know yeah I think I just um I don't know I guess it's like prior, prior it's priorities but it's not necessarily always you know, um, that I'm too busy, like, thinking about what it is I have to do for me. It's more sort of like, I'm just tired. <laughs> I think I'm just really tired. And it ta- that kind of stuff takes more of an effort, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. Sometimes my face doesn't, like, sometimes I really genuinely think I'm <laughs> behaving a certain way and then I'll be told something completely different, you know that I looked angry or unhappy. <laughs> and I just, it's not, it's just what my face is doing. How much of Sharon in Catastrophe is the is a kind of the behaviour, space of id, the behaviour that you would maybe like to lean more into? Oh, yeah. God, so much, really. Because I guess the Sharon character is a mixture of Rob and I and you know, vice versa. It's not just me and Sharon. It's not yeah, just course, Rob and yeah. Rob. And I think her ability to sort of, you know, break stuff down and and talk about it, and you know, that all feels like like fantasy. Mm. <laughs> I, I find that kind of stuff so difficult. You know, just yeah, just figuring stuff out, getting to the root of a problem, and working out the puzzle and reporting back, kind of thing. Yeah, I'm much less good at that. I would love to have that. And also, I think maybe, I think she she does have that thing where she's honest and expresses what she's thinking 
by accident through her whatever her face is doing, but also out loud because she wants to. Just going back to Rob and Sharon's relationship and catastrophe, they, within a very short space of time, obviously I know it's in TV world, so it's plotty, um, but I was thinking about what they've been through and they've been through a cancer scare, yeah. a family bereavement yeah. and uh, an unplanned pregnancy, yeah. addiction, yeah. Um, big, big things, uh-huh. huge financial issues. Mm. Um, and, you know, they have charged arguments where there are there are cruel things that are said mm. what do you think it is about that couple that keeps them together that we so believe in and that we root for them because the odds are like against them yeah um I think it is just like, certainly as the series continued we were just like oh they just don't work without each other like whatever capabilities or skills they had you know, when they first met, they've just fallen by the wayside. <laughs> and now they're like, I'm just, like, Rob does this brilliant piece of stand up about, you know, just like taking um, a cheese grater and exposing like the flesh. And then, like, you so see, you press the two bodies together and then it grows together again and they become fused. And if you were to try and part, it would be just too messy. It would just yeah. be too much of a, of a, it would just be too much of, um, what do you call it? A bloodbath. Bloodbath. <laughs> I was going to say blood fest. And yes, yeah, so they just don't, they, 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 they're not like hold people um, on their own anymore. And I think that does happen, doesn't mm. it? You're like, you need all these sort of props and sort of human s- s- scaffolding made out of bone in that kind of situation. I think earlier on in their relationship, they were more prepared to sort of say goodbye but after that, it's just sort of, I think they they kind of been through the wreckage and survived and, and kind of come out the other side and and then had this realisation, which was kind of tricky for series four because we'd ended on this like terrible thing happening and mm. we were like, oh, well, they can't. We sort of had this manifesto now and we sort of, you know, stated it at the end of the last series that that was it now. They were just together. So it was kind of good because we kind of, gave ourselves these uh, this sort of arena to work within, you know, like they have to stay together. So we just have to find a way around it. People can be particularly a kind of modern therapised notion. People can be down on that's something that people could call codependence. Yeah. But more and more, I think that that is a reality for a lot of people. And I was talking to my friend recently and she said, you know, over and over again, you hear this thing of like, you can't be in love and you can't make someone else happy until you're happy on your own. And you have to be the best version of yourself before (laughs) you, you know. And she was like, I just think that's bullshit. And I think that there are a lot of people for whom they just become better people and life becomes easier for them when they meet their person. Yeah. (laughs) And the separation of that would be unbearable. I just think it's true. I mean, that kind of stuff is true even but before you know before you even think about partner or or you know like I feel like that about my family mm. I, I just you know if you separated me from them I you know I'd just sort of fall over and die mm. and I, you know I wouldn't feel myself and I wouldn't feel like a whole person and so I think it's I think that's fine I think it's fine to kind of rely on someone else I'm I'm terrible on my own I'm terrible I mean so much worse than I used to be 
I just can't hack it. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I, I, you know, I like for a night, great. And, you know, maybe even for a few days. And, but, you know, I went, I went to New York recently to film this thing, which should have been like the greatest fun. And it was. And, you know, I'm in New York in, in the autumn and, you know, like filming this fun thing. And, I mean, I was like there for three days and I was like, I, I staying in this great hotel, by the way, which is like cool and, you know, sexy and all those things. And, I was just like, I can't, I just had to just kind of get out there. I lasted three nights. I was like, no, I'm just going to go and stay with my friend Jesse. I just mm. couldn't be on my own for that long. Mm. It just sort of made me feel um, anxious. Mm. And have you always been like that? Or do you think it no. is, it's having a family? That... Yeah, it's having a family, but I don't know. What is it? Fucking age as well, maybe. I don't know. I, uh, I think I sort of spent a huge chunk of time away from my family when I was making a show over there. And uh, and I think that sort of like did some sort of permanent damage or, you know, sort of wired me differently or something. And mm. so, you know, when I am away, I kind of get a bit of PTSD kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's real pain because I like worked hard and for a long time to get to a point where I can't just go off and you know, make something. And now suddenly I have this fear of mm. traveling and fear of being alone. It's annoying. I remember listening to you on Adam Buxton's podcast and you were talking, I think you were talking about that time. You were talking oh, yeah. about when God, you were just, in I'm, LA. I'm so bored of listening to myself speak now because <laughs> it's really hard to say. It's like Lady Gaga, just take, if you it go into a room and a hundred people and things. I I'm doing a, a live tour of my show and my best friend's interviewing <gasps> me and I was like, I have this horrible feeling that when you look at me with those sort of dead eyes, you're watching me <laughs> saying, there can be 99 <laughs> people. And I'm telling one of my like brilliant anecdotes that she's heard for the millionth time we went we went um to pitch a a, a thing uh, last week and you know so you go you go into seven different rooms and you know you're the first room you go into it's like you're the greatest wittiest yeah. and you you chip in and you say things that are sound unrehearsed but you know you've said 20 times but <laughs> you're kind of hearing yourself say it for the first time and you're going in with like producers and stuff and and everyone's like oh this is great and then by the time you get the last room you, you look at you really do everyone's just lost the will to live and they don't even bother it's like hmm you know it's horrible also I think you just live in fear there's this really like mean spirited video on YouTube of Helen Mirren on various chat shows oh. telling the same oh, story God. like 15 times and the ha even like the hand gesture and they cut between every single oh, no. one and it's like a choreographed and obviously she wouldn't have done that on purpose, but you do you do have certain messages that you have to get out totally. about your work or whatever. So you do just have to find a safe, entertaining Listen, way of doing it. I think you, you re yeah, I mean that completely, but you, you, I mean, you kind of mix it up a bit. I mean, sometimes like new things come out and then, then that thing gets brought on to the, mm. the next sort of chat that you do and... You do. I mean, it, it it can feel like you're repeating yourself and that can feel a bit soul destroying. So it's not like you don't want to say something fresh and new, but sometimes it's just like the barrel's kind of empty. But anyway, totally. go but on. No, going Adam back Buxton. to what you said on Adam Buxton, which was you are not repeating yourself, but it's a thought that I had where I remember I was listening to it when I was in Thailand. I was having like a break on my own and I'd been being hysterical and dramatic which is very unlike me Sharon I can assure you because I felt very overworked and I got to a point where I was just like I just don't 
I feel like I don't have any margin for life. Yes. For yeah. like things going wrong yeah. or for God, like a gym class or, you know. know. Do you know what I mean? Or for something, me being locked out of my house. I remember one day it was like, the, I was so tightly scheduled that yeah. day that the chain of events then had this like volcanic That's a horrible feeling. I know effect. Exactly. And it, you just feel like a caged animal. And I remember listening to an interview with you and you were talking in a non, you were not complaining about it. You were just talking about what your schedule had been like when you were in America. And you were saying, in the day I was I was shooting divorce and in the evening I was writing catastrophe and I was in LA and my kids were over here and we got into a routine where I'd have half an hour before she went to bed where I was still awake to the time zone and I would read her a story over Skype. And I remember just listening, being like, Dolly, you have no fucking idea what being overscheduled is. <laughs> you have no fucking idea. And truly, when I listened to that, I was like, I don't know how this woman does it. Yeah, but that was horrible. Mm. I mean, it's not normally like that, although I'm completely relating to the what you were just saying about there's no mar- margin for anything going wrong. Like the last few days we've been, you know, my daughter's doing her 11 plus and trying to get into schools. And there was a bit of, you know, difficulty around the school that we thought was a definite. And then so it's suddenly like last minute applications to other things mm-hmm. and writing, you know, character references for a 10 year old and like <laughs> running into schools and having meetings with, you know, heads and, and and dyslexia teachers and like, you know, trying to not let that show in your face when your kid gets home and staying happy like that. Like the last two nights, I genuinely thought I was... I mean, I, th- I, this happens a lot where I'm just like, yeah, I'm just going to quit this job. This is fucking ridiculous. This mm. is nuts. Because there was no time or headspace for me to to deal with it, you know. And uh, so, so yeah. But that that happens more rarely. And the thing in, in you know, when I was making divorce, that was, that was unusual, you know. N- yeah. And I suppose you only learn by pushing those boundaries. Yeah. Yeah, because because and it also it also only happens occasionally when you do feel overwhelmed, and sometimes all you need to do is make a list and if you write down those five things, like when five things are swirling around your brain, it kind of gets into a sort of crazy whirlpool and you kind of stop seeing what those things are. It's just like this sort of noise, and 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 so I've kind of learned to kind of write the things down and then you're like oh it's just those things yeah and then you like go well that's going to take me half an hour and that's like but I've got to put two hours aside for that but you know I can do that after blah 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 and and then you're like ah and then the whirlpool kind of slows down and and then you go into the next week and it's and it's normal Mm -hmm. you know but yeah it's kind of it's sort of dangerous to do that to yourself because like I can definitely sometimes actually feel my blood kind of bubbling mm-hmm. under my skin you know like anxiety is mad like that isn't it how it kind of you know where you fit you it's so physical like when you feel it in your gut and in your kind of blood and and then you get an outbreak of acne which I currently have um but which like, I cannot see oh, even a like speck of up in the taxi <laughs> on the way over but you know like it's so weird how it kind of physically manifests itself it's, yeah and I think it's that that feeling of that writing the things down, I think, has been such an important thing for me because I think when you start thinking of things in a really big macro way, so what will this, like, well, what happens if this gets commissioned and yes. then I'm going to be tied into yeah. this thing for ages? What happens if, yeah. I think when you start thinking in these huge terms, and also it's ridiculous doing that in TV because TV just takes a million bajillion years. It's so you, nuts. And, and, and the thing is, it's just good to, 
get that out there that people know that because I, I think people think I'm mental. You know, there when it sounds like there's so many things on the go, but I know for a fact that it'll take a year to get to that point with that one yeah. or, you know, or, or yeah, exactly. Before you, you might write a script, but it might, you know, take another three months for anyone's even going to read it or, you know, I, I kind of, I don't know. I just feel like I'm doing it for a while. I kind of know this stuff now. So I know I can take stuff on because I find it hard to say no to stuff that genuinely makes me excited. I'm not just doing it for the hell of it. Sharon, on to a story of first love and your first love story is your mother. (laughs) How many people say that? Um, Do you know, Jessie Cave chose her mother as her everlasting love. Did she? Yeah. Yeah. See, that's what I hope from my daughter. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't actually. That would be terrible. I I wouldn't want me to be her. Maybe one of her everlasting loves. One of the everlasting loves. I think... The, the mother-daughter thing, from from what I can see, certainly with my friends and the relationships with our mums, I think just that every, unless you have a very unfortunate relationship with your mother yeah. or horrible circumstances, yeah. on the whole, I just think with every year you get older as a woman, you appreciate more and more yeah. the, the woman that raised you and who yeah. she is. And I, now I look back on the time when I was just such a twat to her. And I think of it as like this lost time with this yeah. wonderful person. How long were you a twat for? I was a twat for, from about the age of 13 to 17. Oh, shit. Yeah. So you're oh, right actually, in the thick no, of that's it. that's not too bad. No, no. How was it with your mum when you were a teenager? Oh, I I mean, I think it was okay. I mean, I was definitely a brat for a few years and a bit of a lunatic and, you know, like drinking in the park at night or, you know, just kind of normal teenage things. But it never really caused us to fall out, which is pretty uh, amazing, actually, considering, you know, she she's... Uh, you know, she's a genuinely good Catholic um, woman with, you know, who never would have sort of gone off the rails herself. So the fact that she would even have been able to get her head around it, you know. Um, and, you know, she had a lot of kids, so there was a lot of us around. So I think that was the big thing of why I just sort of what wanted her attention so much and her love so much because there was so many other kids around sort of vying for it. How many were there? I mean, look, I'm making it sound like the Waltons. There was five of us. Jesus, I mean, that's a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. So, yeah, I just remember that feeling of um, just, just being desperate for her attention. And, like, you know... We um, grew up on a turkey farm and so there wasn't, you know, turkey farms, it's not big business. So there wouldn't have been, um, there's a lot of kids, so not a huge amount of money around. So I don't remember my mum ever going away for anything resembling, a, you know, <laughs> a holiday or a break mm. or a girls weekend or anything. But she did go to Lourdes once um, <laughs> with, her, her. with her sister, who's a nun, and my um, nana and... Um, just that feeling of her being gone and just like waiting for that phone call when she would check in and you know that panic of like hearing the you know the 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 money go down or whatever it was um at the time like payphone and just like that thing of I, and I kind of guess I I I didn't notice it so much until I had kids of my own but mm. you know when like some sometimes my daughter sleep in the same bed as me and uh 
and just like hoping that they feel the way I felt when I got a chance to sleep with my mum, just that kind of, I could genuinely remember the, like, like just wanting the warmth of her skin and, you know, just that, like, whatever it is, that sort of mum <laughs> smell and sort of softness and stuff. And um, I remember when I, <laughs> when I had my first um, daughter, she, when, you know, it's like, fucking traumatic birth but when I came out the other side she was the first person I thought of Mm. because I remember thinking shit she had to go through exactly the same kind of pain but without any of like she'd get a nice epidural in her back she probably Mm. didn't have gas in there certainly Mm. didn't have a husband in there holding her hand Mm. like just that just like destroyed me um but yeah it's just that I don't know. I, I guess I think about it a lot now because I am a mum and, you know, my daughters are going through those sort of one's 15 and one's 10. So it's all those sort of different stages of how much they like me or want to be with me. And um, yeah, so I guess it's just made me think about it a bit more. And what kind of mother was she? What kind of mother was she? Um, just and really super present. You know, she like she worked with my dad, but she was very, very much like around, very, very there, like, you know, loving and um, like good sense of humor, like easy to make laugh, but overall sort of like good person, like sweet, good um, person who also didn't take any shit, by the way. And I think we put it in one series of catastrophe, but we might have attributed it to my father but you know she wouldn't be afraid to go head to head with the nuns you know (laughs) um she would do that for you yeah which is amazing because she's quite the sort of gentle woman but obviously has these sort of balls of steel and uh yeah just a just a proper family person I mean I could never even like think of comparing myself to her in terms of mothering because it's mm. just so um so different but but it's you know a lucky old me <laughs> I've heard it said that when you have your own children it does make you reflect on your own childhood almost like new memories can kind of surface or a new understanding of mm. how who your parent was and how they parented yeah did you find that when when you had kids that there were things that you suddenly understood much more about her? Like you were saying, you know, suddenly imagining her having to go through birth five yeah. times in a very different way. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess I did. Um, it, it did make me think that, and this could just be um, a, a misplaced memory, but it did make me think that she was um, calmer, you know, than probably I am as a parent. Like, there was definitely challenging stuff that I threw at her. I think I only ever remember her swearing at me once. Do you know what it was in (laughs) regards to? (laughs) No, I wish I could. I remember the geography of it. Like, I remember it being in the car and her driving me um, to, I used to, (laughs) this is so nuts, like 70s parents, but um, (laughs) she used to drop me at a point on the the dual carriageway on the way up to Dublin to hitchhike. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when I was like, 
you know, <laughs> straight from the seventies parenting yeah, manual. Yeah, so I was standing there, and it was always truckers. It was never not like some lad driving, and then another lad behind you in the sort of you know bunk bed bit. You know, and was she cool? Was she cool with that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's just it's just different. Different time, yeah. But yeah, I remember it being on on the way to getting dropped off there. I mean, maybe I was eighteen, but you know, I wasn't any older than that. Um, but no, I don't remember what the argument was, but I remember her being so upset that she swore that I'd driven her to the point where she, you know, she'd said, fuck, fucking whatever it was, you know, um, and me just being like, <laughs> so shocked that it had come out of her. And this young Sharon, who was like hitchhiking on dual carriageways and drinking <laughs> in parks, sounds like a very, very cool chick. <laughs> Was well, she cool? Like you sound like you were. were cool? like, was I cool? Pretty um, punk and amazing. I think I was. I was a little bit punk. Yeah. Um, I, I think I always um, was less cool than someone else. You know, I was never ever the top of any kind of uh, pile. <laughs> you know, I was. I was n- never um, the leader or. You know, I mean, so you know, my friendship groups or even, you know, wider sort of circle of friends, it was always someone cooler that I would be striving to be. So for from that point of view, I would never have seen myself as as, you know, a cool kid. But I don't know. I look I guess I, I look back and I kind of think, well, I mean, that wasn't bad considering he was raised in the Honestly, the arse end of nowhere on a so turkey farm. So was it farm. really out in the sticks where you were? Yeah, yeah, yes. And speaking of your group of friends, there was one particular girl who is going to be the second love story that you tell me, which is a story of unrequited love. <laughs> is her name Roshi? Yeah. Um, she. I wondered if this is a pseudonym. Is this her real name? That is actually her real name. Right. She, won't, she won't mind me saying because we did actually get um, back in touch kind of recently and 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 she came around my house and we hung out for a night and it was it was great no she I mean it feels cruel to call it unrequited love because I think we were you know crazy about each other we we it's ridiculous but we you know we used to write poetry together and like we had nicknames for each other who was it Edith and Simone, like Edith and her best friend Simone, um, uh, we'd like so sign little letters to each other with those names. And, what because it's kind of French and she, yeah, French and she yeah. can and she can too close, you know, way too close. And no, it was just I guess the unrequited thing kind of came from the fact that she was, you know, she was the alpha in the relationship, so I was always you know, yearning for her to sort of need me as much as I needed her. I think really genuinely deep down she did, but it was never, it was never, you know, obvious to me when I was, when I was a teenager. And how old were you when you met her? I met her when I was 13. And And was it like an inseparable best friends forever? Totally intense. Yeah. Yeah. But she sort of discovered um, men um, younger than me. And um, I mean, not that I wasn't, you know, I was very aware of them, but they, I didn't, I didn't, ha- she, she seemed to sort of, sort of go from nothing to sort of very fully developed, almost adult um, relationship, relationships. And so that kind of like threw me. And the the first kind of proper guy that she fell for um, 
I was like, I was like, I'm so, I'm so happy that you got together with whoever it was, Cormac. And uh, she was like, yeah, don't be a gooseberry. <laughs> like that was the first thing she said. Like, how, And how old were you at that point? Uh, 14, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, that is young. Yeah, 14. Maybe I was 15. She was 14. She was almost a year younger than me, by the way. And it is funny how you do have those girls that you're at school with. Were you at all girls? Yeah, school? yeah. It's funny school. how you do have those girls who... It's not like just a bit of snogging and fooling around. Yeah. Them. They get into these like big oh my God. adult. Yeah. And they normally sort of stay, go from one to the other. Yeah. For the rest of their yes. lives. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. And that is, um, that's that can be very alienating when you're this like yeah. dorky little 13 or 14 yeah. year old. Yeah. Well, I mean, it did sort of make me think, oh, you know, if you can't beat them. So, I mean, you know, I was always interested in, in, in boys like and and getting like male attention and stuff. But um, I did sort of think, right, I better sort this one out <laughs> quicker than I'd sort of planned. And um, were you kind of boy mad or were you just kind of boy interested? Um, I was pretty, you know, I forget who I was telling this to, but if it got to the end of the night in a club and the lights came on, <laughs> And I hadn't sort of pulled, I'd feel pretty devastated. Yeah. You know, it was definitely something. It was like, I guess I just sort of needed it to feel good about myself or, you know, everyone else was doing it. And it, it just felt like something that was important. Like it was important to sort of have that kind of male attention. And so, yeah, I kind of, you know, had lots of little kind of mini relationships when I, when I was younger, but... You know, nothing kind of serious until I was adult. And then what happened with Rosie? So she said, don't be a gooseberry. <laughs> yeah, don't be a gooseberry. But um, I mean, oh, we, we, we stayed friends right up until, you know, we were um, 18 and then kind of uh, drifted apart. But, but, you know, but that sort of broke my heart that we drifted apart. She went to a different university to me and I like really mourned the friendship, you know, because she was sort of my everything, even though... Even though, you know, I got sort of um, short shrift a lot of the time. But um, but yeah, we sort of drifted apart. And when she got back in touch, it was like about a year later. And I, I kind of felt, no, it's it's too late. Like you, like you sort of left me. Mm. It was weird. It was like a reaction to a sort of lover coming back. Mm. Sort of saying, you know, I remember her calling and it was like this amazing thing. She was like, I'm in London and it was supposed to be this incredible surprise. And I just like, I was cold and like, and I could hear her sort of voice faltering and, you know, I was like giving it the sort of big I am that I'm in London now and um, <laughs> uh, things have changed. And, but still like agreeing to meet her that night, but I was obviously like just cold and, I went along to meet her at some sort of squat party and and she didn't, she didn't show up because she couldn't like, she told me like sort of years later, like when we did meet as adults, down the, proper adults down the line that she just couldn't, it's just too much. She couldn't sort of mm. deal with the fact that I, not like had the upper hand, but like was suddenly like not the sort of adoring sort of, you know, I'll take whatever scraps you'll throw me, yeah, kind of friend. Yeah, and and so and to your coldness, it was, it was probably like years of feeling a bit rejected, and yeah, second yeah, best and yeah, yeah, kind of hurt by that. Yeah, she did write me a letter after she didn't turn up, and it was a really heartbreaking letter. 
I forgot this is the time when people just can't send a text no. and be like... She'd written this great big long letter to me from Germany just kind of explaining why she'd sort of drifted away and why she'd never got in touch and and it all like, all totally made sense. But I just like, I don't know, just something kind of... I'm a bit like, can be a bit cold like that, I suppose, where I'm kind of like, no, that's that's it, no. But, um, but you know, but we did sort of meet up down the line and, and, and sort of did really you, laughed about it. Yeah, did you, were you thinking of her in your in your kind of 20s? Oh, and Every, like, almost every day, I would say. Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, up until that point where we kind of properly kind of... Buried the hatchet. Yeah, but yeah. even after, you know, she sent that letter and I remember like, oh yeah, just thought about her all the time. And then I guess, and then it just, then you just stop and it just goes away. That's so weird. And now you've kind of, you said she came round recently. Yeah. Yeah, we just got pissed together in my kitchen a couple of years ago. It was really great. She was great. She was really good crack. And I was like, oh yeah, I totally get why we were like proper friends. And do you mourn that time where you weren't in each other's lives? Or is, was do you think that it's an inevitability that that kind of adolescent intensity couldn't have continued through adult life? Yeah, I mean, it, it can't, can it? It's, uh, it's too much, I think. I'm, try, I'm trying to write about it at the moment with um, with Holly Walsh. or not, I mean, we, we are writing about it. But trying to recapture that sort of intense best friendship, but putting it into an adult sort of female friendship and... Mm. We just yeah, it's uh, it's it's really fun, interesting writing it, but it is so intense, isn't it? That time. Speaking of your teenage life, mm. this leads us on to a story of everlasting love, which is music, and in particular, Kate Bush. Yeah, and I'm interested. What music were you listening to as a teenager? Kate Bush. Is that what all you were listening yeah. to? It's not all I was listening to. I mean, I listened to a lot of Cocteau Twins. And, uh, you know, a lot of kind of sort of darker kind of stuff. Um, a lot of David Bowie. I mean, David Bowie was was my main man, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, Kate kind of came a little bit later. But weirdly, she... I mean, I still listen to a lot of Bowie. But um, weirdly, she's sort of more present, I think, you know, I mean, I sort of like that's kind of would turn to her music maybe a little bit more often than, than I would Bowie. Um, I find music so much more emotional now than than I used to, which is kind of weird. I mean, I find everything more emotional than I used to. It's kind of sad because I, I sort of stopped reading books. Like when I read your book, I was so like, oh, my God, I read a book. Because my, there's so many, so much to read in my life at the moment. Where, yeah, you know, I'm constantly yeah. being sent scripts and, or, you know, things to adapt or, I mean, that's reading a book, but you know what I mean? It, it's sort of, there's constantly rewrites yeah, to read or, it, yeah. you know, and, and I kind of, I kind of associate it with work and I know mm. that's not right, but so in, in a, I used to read a lot and, and books have kind of gone from my life a little bit, which is, I'm, really, I'm going to try and turn that around. But in a way, like... Music, I guess, has sort of replaced that, you know, in terms of like the story, you mm. know. And the Kate Bush's music is so beautiful it's stories. All, all about these beautiful mm. stories. And um when I when I went to to see her perform, um just that wonderful um, show of hers that's like part theatre, part, you know, um concert and 
I mean, the story within that and I mean, she just just breaks my heart how she, um, you know, how she expresses herself and this crazy sort of like um, crazy imagery that's just so kind of brutal on the one hand and just delicate on the other. And, and I don't know, she's just such so female isn't she she's just like this incredible representation of like all the best bits of of Mm. being a woman Mm. and yeah it just I god I hope she keeps making music because it's been wonderful to kind of dip in and out of those worlds like even when it's you know been a decade since she put something out there Mm. um yeah just it's great that she's on the planet and I think in terms of the connection with womanhood I my I have the same about Joni Mitchell Joni Mitchell's my home girl mm. and I was listening to a radio full program about her the other day that was called Joni Mitchell taught me how to feel and it was all these people who had these uniquely personal experiences that they thought <laughs> no one else in the world had yeah. which is the stories and the words and the mood of her songs have helped me build Mm. who my emotional Mm -hmm. life Mm -hmm. inside which means which is how I feel and I think you have that with when you are listening to Kate Bush or David Bowie for your whole life yeah you the the, it becomes so much more significant because they're they're in your DNA if you've been listening to it for so long And, and and that's so true and you know, how, I guess, different events that have happened along the way have mm. changed those songs for you. Like, um, recently, my my eldest girl has sort of gotten into Bowie, but I remember, so she listens to him for pleasure, but the first song that I introduced to her of his was Kooks. And because it's such a cute, like, yeah. sort of almost kitty kind of sound and feel. And, and so now when I listen to that, all I think about is her when she was, you know, yeah. six or seven or whatever it was. So, yeah, and and I guess, and it's the same with Kate Bush. I mean, I've been, I have been trying to get my daughter into Kate Bush as well. And she is, she she likes it. But. And if I were to push you for a favourite Kate Bush song or the one that, that kind of moves you most? Um, moments of pleasure kind of, I mean, it makes me want to cry just even thinking about it it's ridiculous I mean I love songs that name check people you know from their lives like bringing like their reality in into like this yeah these beautiful moments and um she just it's it's like a song that has just so much sorrow in it but it's still like she manages to express herself in a way that doesn't feel maudlin it's just like a celebration of life like she's great at like celebrating and uh, but yeah, I mean that's if I had to pick one, maybe that. Sharon, on to your final love story, mm-hmm. which is a story of passionate love, which you said is your writing and creating and work. Mm. Um, I feel like you've become a sort of poster girl for the kind of second act success story. <laughs> yeah. Um, can you tell me a bit about your twenties and 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 how how you came to start? creating uh I mean my 20s were just like just I re- I'm sort of confused about what happened really I mean I definitely came to London to make my fortune mm. and then um I mean did every kind of job under the sun and 
Um, but just sort of avoided doing the thing that I'd sort of come over to do. And then when I did do it, I did it so half-heartedly, you know, didn't really put my back into it. And and I guess, like, with hindsight, it's either I was too scared to give it a proper go in, in case I failed, or I just didn't have the confidence to, you know, think that I should be doing that. But whatever it was, um, I didn't really do it. And then, um, you know, I think I'd sort of decided to forget about that dream, I guess, um, because I, I left my job and I didn't leave my job to go and, you know, I, I left my job to go and do a degree. Like I was thinking, like, get, get a, you know, go and do a degree and, you know, then try and get, then try and get something in. I, I think I was thinking like maybe I could get a job in TV production or something, but I definitely had stopped sort of thinking about you know, the sort of performance writing side of it. And then I, I just kind of got lucky. I just um, bumped into Dennis Kelly, who'd been at this youth theatre that I sort of half-heartedly, you know, did a few sort of plays that lasted three days um, over 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 a couple of years and bumped into him again. And, you know, I guess I started writing a bit at university. I was doing a bit of creative writing as part of my degree and, and just a few sort of things happening at the one time, like meeting Dennis and Dennis having written this play and, and you know, me feeling like, oh, I think, you know, I think maybe I'd like to put that on. And then it just sort of kind of gave me a bit of a kick up the arse. And, and then, yeah, I think Dennis and I just sort of really enjoyed hanging out together and really enjoyed making each other laugh and really did make each other laugh. I mean, he's one of the funniest men you could ever meet. And um, we just used to get pissed and, and sort of talk about what we wanted to do. And I was like, you know, I was working in the bong shop at that point uh, and waitressing and he was working corporate art and hating it. And, and yeah, we just um, started writing sketches and, you know, stuff like that and filming some stuff and just trying to find a way into that world. And then just suddenly we were sort of in it. I mean, as very sort of newbies with with very little sort of going on, really, when I think about it and really not knowing anyone. Um, but I don't know, I guess we, we just found a way in. And um, yeah, I guess at that point, 2001, so I was you know, 30, 2001. Yeah, 31. Um, and um, yeah, we got a, a bit of a break. Yeah, so yeah, my life in this job started at 31. Mm. So that, yeah, it's quite a long time to wait. And and I think there is a, um, a misconception, as it turns out, that, you know, if you haven't, you know, made a sort of market sort of much younger than that, then you've kind of lost your your opportunity and that's not necessarily the case and um I mean I really did have to put my head down then and sort of like motor it up a gear <laughs> but um yeah so it was a bit of a um, second chance I was definitely like you know forget about it mm. do something else but that you put up a picture on Instagram a while back of you in your twenties. Everyone was doing their sort of throwback oh, yeah, pictures, yeah. and it was a picture of you, and you looked so cool. You looked like a kind of 
grunge dream pinup girl with dark <laughs> lipstick and a real attitude and someone who would never be friends with me. And <laughs> I did think, do you feel like there is something to be said about the fact that that looked like a girl that was really like living life? And do you think that there's something to be said about a decade that you spent kind of living and mining experience and fucking things up and having having you know real human experience do you think that's something that you were able to imbue in your is that is that experience you were grateful for I completely do I mean it's that what happened then is is basically what's what pulling is about you know so Dennis and I wouldn't have written that if we hadn't sort of screwed up for so many years or you know slept with the wrong people or had drinking problems or bad shared accommodation experiences or the primary, terrible jobs. The primary school teacher friend who goes in crying on a come down, which is my yeah. favourite episode. Oh, I live with a primary school teacher. <laughs> Reading to the kids. <laughs> <laughs> so good, that scene. Um, oh, yeah, I love that. Um, so, yeah, we wouldn't have done any of that. But, I mean, and that has kind of been my go-to kind of... I guess, um, story for um, a long time. But it's only kind of recently that I am a bit like, yeah, but come on, you didn't need to fuck around for that long. I mean, you could have split that decade in half and you still would have had a pretty good time. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you still would have had uh, plenty to write about. So I I do get a little bit angry at myself. And I think m- mainly because I feel sad that I didn't feel like I had the confidence to do it or didn't feel like I had enough to offer or like, you know, why couldn't I have just sort of marched in there and and said, I'm doing this and, you know, mm. sort of not taking no for an answer. But I just didn't just didn't have those um, bones at that time. And uh, so I suppose like I sort of look at who I am now and and I'm not scared of those rooms and I am happy to ask for something if I want it and you know I don't always get it but I will sort of ask and so it would have been nice if I'd been able to give myself um a little bit of that Mm. but one thing it really has done is made me absurdly grateful because I think if it had come to me too easily or too young or any of those things you kind of just take it for granted and it's a crazy life that we have and it's an insane a privilege to be able to, you know, sometimes sit around in your dressing gown and just imagine fun yeah. stuff and, yeah. you know, stick it into a laptop and and then, you know, turn up where there's like makeup trucks and um, wonderful people kind of running around making your vision a reality. And I mean, that's that's nuts. And yeah. And um, and I genuinely don't think I I still get excited at a, even a catering table. You know, I still get excited that someone might turn up in a car and take me somewhere to film something. All those things are, you know, I'm really grateful for. It doesn't mean I don't get, you know, fed up and angry and tired and mm. want to give up on all those things. But I think it's a nice thing to um, appreciate because... Because I do love my job and I do sort of appreciate like the fact that I was sitting around with three very funny women today writing about these, you know, characters that I love and um, it's a good love to have. I mean, my children are my true love. <laughs> of course, but, life, that, but, but they're, they're boring. It, it sounds <laughs> no. true. I mean, that just goes without saying, of doesn't course, it? Of I course. felt like 
I feel like sometimes it's just, it's so easy to take it for granted, you know, like anything that you, you love. <laughs> and um, so I kind of thought it was worth um, name checking that. And how how do you, that whole kind of life being the thing that, that inspires and energises and galvanises the writing, when you are you and you have your production company, Merman, and you have to come on tedious podcasts and talk about your shows, <laughs> like mine, and you have to do the publicity thing and you have to do emails and you have to do admin, how important is it for a writer, do you believe, to be at the front line of life, of experience? I think it's really important. I don't do any admin. <laughs> um I do think it's really important. And um, in fact, I really notice when the, I'm depleted, you know, because I notice when I come to the laptop and there's nothing really there, mm. you know. So I'm I, I'm I'm really aware that you need that um fuel. Um because, you know, what am I gonna talk about? Running a production company. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the last meeting I went to, <laughs> I, I, I don't, you know, and, I, and, and likewise, um, you know, I don't want to repeat myself. I don't, I don't want to be, I mean, I, I do really, if I'm honest, that's sort of kind of what I do, repeat myself in, in sort of very different ways, but I hope. Um, but at the same time, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta move it up a gear and keep yourself as well as the people who are listening to you interested. And so, um, so yeah, I think it's I think it's really important to to live and and to be very um awake, observant. You know? Yeah. 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 Of your on-screen husband Rob. Yeah. You said, "I'll remember you as the sturdy lovemaker with a massive chin who was really kind to waiters and taxi drivers, which suggests that you might actually be a good person." And Rob said of your on-screen character Sharon, "I want you to know that I'm going to look back at my time with you and remember you as an extraordinarily good-smelling woman with a magical ass." <laughs> and which is two of my favorite lines. And I wanted to know, I know this is a very very big annoying question, but when you think to the future of how people will think of your work and your stories. Oh God, that is big. What would you like people to think of your, of your work? I guess the thing that um, I enjoy the most about um, people's responses is when they uh, tell me, but they should be telling me and Rob or me and Holly or me and Dennis or whatever, but when they tell me that they feel like whatever it was that they watched or, or heard that it sort of made them feel slightly better about what it was they themselves were feeling because I think sometimes it's really hard to express terrible thoughts you know that make you either feel like a bad person or a bad mother or a bad friend or you know a bad wife and if you have someone who like expresses those things for you you can kind of sort of breathe a sigh of relief so they're my favorite things that have sort of ever been said to me that that feels like enough that feels like a a, a great thing I mean I I'd love for people to remember the shows I mean it would make me incredibly happy if people were still watching pulling or a catastrophe like years down the line like that's an, an amazing thing so I'd love to be remembered for those shows but yeah I, I guess like a sense of 
making people feel less like freaks mm. <laughs> or, mm. or more like um, comfortable in their skin. Yeah, that I think. And I do have a feeling that people are going to be watching Catastrophe and pulling oh God, in that'd be so hundreds nice. of years to come. Sharon Hawkin, thank you so much for You're telling welcome. me your love stories. You're thank you for listening to Love Stories. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes to give the series a boost and help others find it. And you can buy my book, Everything I Know About Love, published by Fig Tree, which is out in paperback on the 7th of February with a brand new bonus chapter, Everything I Know at 30. You can find my book in Waterstones, on Amazon and in all good bookshops, or buy the audiobook with the bonus chapter on Audible. Love Stories is recorded in the Penguin Studio in London. The producer is Adrian Cecil. The editor is Richard Hughes. The music was composed and recorded by Lauren Benstead. Tune in next week when another guest will be telling me their love stories. <laughs>